0: plushcare.com slash
2: hello I'm Mark Riley and I'm Rob Hughes and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie the greatest rock and roll star in the world
1: ever ever N is for Never Let Me Down. Never Let Me Down, David Bowie's 17th studio album. And it has to be said, Mark, probably his most maligned. Yes. All right, released on the 20th of April, 1987 on EMI America. He conceived the album as the basis for all the theatrics of the Glass Spider tour writing and recording most of the songs in Switzerland. He said at the time he wanted to get back to rock and roll. It is ironic,
2: isn't it? I mean, Mm. his view on the album and what he wanted it to be and what it turned out to be. All that will unfold, won't it? It will, it will. So Never Let Me Down was certified gold in early July 1987, less than three months after its release, and charted in the top ten in several European countries, although it only reached number 34 in the US. Despite its commercial success, the album was poorly received by fans and critics. Bowie later distanced himself from the arrangement and production of the finished album, but also admitted a fondness for many of the songs, which we will get into we later.
1: Will. We will. In fact, so in July 2018, it was announced that the album would be re-released as Never Let Me Down 2018, which is all part of this uh, the Bowie Loving the Alien box set, isn't it? With a brand new production and new instrumentation overseen by producer and engineer, Mario J. McNulty. Okay, and we will mention at this point in time, and many of you out there, you'd be bowing nuts
2: like us. Uh, you might well have seen Bob's brilliant piece in uh, Uncut. And we'll we'll get to uh, some of the actual outtakes and, uh, and all that kind of stuff a little bit later on. But that is the sound of me dangling a carrot. Ooh. Before we look at the development of the album, I mean, I'd kind of not really taken much interest in this album.
1: Yeah, same here. I mean, when it came out, I, I wasn't even interested, I'll be honest, in Bowie full stop that year, which is terrible because I wish I'd seen the Blast Spider tour, as I said, but I mean, recording wise, it just wasn't kind of going for it at that point in time I mean I loved Let's Dance and, and yeah. we saw
2: Milton Keynes didn't we yeah. so I mean you know uh, straight off the back of that the, the next run as we know uh, has been well documented it wasn't our favourite period of his career Mm-mm. nor his favourite period of his career yes. and the irony is uh, that of course the album's called Never Let Me Down uh, but the actual sentiment behind the song is completely heartfelt and again we'll delve into yeah, all that sure. so the development of the album following the mainstream success of Let's Dance and its subsequent serious moonlight tour Boy Felt Felt disconnected from his new fan base after the poor reception of Tonight from 1984. And he was looking to make the next album differently. It's strange, isn't it? Because it's careful what you wish for. Mm. And we've talked about it before, but it, when 1983 came around and uh, and he just actually gotten out the uh, ties, a handcuff with Tony DeFries, yeah, yeah, And so he was hell-bent on making money and he did it in a brilliant fashion with Let's Dance. Uh, but then, of course, it created this monster because, as we know, Bowie was a very intellectual and very mischievous he was an adventurous guy yeah. and he felt backed up into a bit of a hole, didn't he? Well, of
1: course, you know, as successful as he'd been up until that point, he was still seen as, you know, the great outsider of rock music, wasn't he? You could sort of always count on Bowie for being on the fringes and a bit difficult and, and edgy. Suddenly he's right there in the mainstream attracting the same kind of audience as Phil Collins and The Stones and all the kind of really big hitters of the 80s and he didn't know what to do with himself. Yeah, and you know, and doing duets with Tina Turner yeah. who, who is
2: amazing, but well, obviously yeah. she defined mainstream really, didn't she, around about that time. Anyway, so Bowie said he wanted to return to a recording with a small rock group like he had early in his career and that he made the album as a move back to rock and roll music very directly. And Bowie felt that the sound
1: of his new album was closer to that of Scary Monsters and Super Creeps than its immediate predecessors. Right, he does have a point there Uh, As mentioned before, he spent the middle of 1986 at home in Switzerland writing songs, then recorded a few demos with Erdal Kizilke before working on the album with the full band. So for the first time since Scary Monsters, Bowie played instruments on the record in addition to singing. Because people forget, don't they, that Let's Dance had a few covers on it and he redid stuff like Cat People. Tonight had some covers, including that terrible Beach Boys one. So for the first time in a while, he seemed sort of re-energised, didn't he? He wanted to get involved, more engaged with the recording he was making. However, it turned out, at least the process was a healthy one. It was kind of a healing process after tonight, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, again,
2: yeah, he just, he, I think he just stopped in his tracks and, and, and looked back at what he'd just been doing and felt that he needed to readjust himself and getting back online. As you say, being known as a changeling yeah. and not being at all uh, predictable.
1: Yeah. So on some tracks on the album, Bowie plays keyboards, synthesizer, rhythm guitar on a uh, couple as well, 87 and Cry and New York's in Love. He plays lead guitar. Yeah, which he wasn't really that well known no. for, was he? Let's be honest. So the album took three months to write and
2: record. Bowie later acknowledged that the songs on the album lacked a cohesive musical style, which he claimed reflected his eclectic music tastes at the time, and stated that the album was a reflection
1: of all the styles of writing I've used over the last few years. Mm, didn't sell it well there. No, not <laughs> really. So one of the people that he recruited to play in it is, called, is his old mate Peter Frampton on lead guitar, which Frampton was uh, you know, really so thrilled about, because he didn't expect it from Start. Of course, they go right back, don't they, to Bromley? So uh, this was uh, Peter Frampton talking to me not long ago for the uncut thing. I love this. He said, "I think Dave." So he called him Dave. You know, they were that close. We've talked about this, haven't we? Because I put on Twitter not that long ago my David Bowie
2: membership card from 1973 mm. expires 1974, and uh, and in the year 2000, David Bowie via Blam. Thank you, Blam. Yeah, he signed it to me um for Mark. Dave Bowie because we used to call him Dave Bowie from the Dave Bowie band Yeah, and I know that he didn't like being called Dave uh, particularly at that point in his career yeah. I, I don't think even from like the 70s onwards he never really signed anything no. Dave did he no he didn't but growing up with Peter Frampton it would have been Dave of he? course
1: it's Dave and Pete I'm sure you know? it was the
2: same for Jeff McCormack <laughs> and George yeah. Underwood he probably was Dave wasn't he but Absolutely. Uh, yeah the, the actual uh, the autograph with Dave on
1: it, it is oh, pretty collectible I've seen it? that it's great so uh, yeah so Frampton says yeah I think Dave was very protective of me i guess this is because it was almost a family connection with my dad owen of course as well he was always there i just had to reach out i got out of the teeny bopper thing with the herd because of humble pie I became a guitar player again thank god then of course Frampton Comes Alive came out, and I got turned back into this pop thing because of the way I looked, and the guitar got kind of forgotten, even though I'm playing the guitar uh, all the time on the record. Yeah, he continued, Davey definitely felt bad for
2: me because of the bad rap I got as a pin-up and the face again, in inverted commas. That's why I believe he called me to do Never Let Me Down, knowing full well that he wanted me to play on the Glass Spider tour and that doing both, especially the tour, going around the world, once in stadiums and once in arenas, he was reintroducing me as a musician... As a guitar player, and for that I can never thank him enough. And uh, you did interview uh, Peter Frampton, didn't you? Yeah. And, yeah. And we will get to that. But also, um, I just gave you the heads up about the uh, the footage of him wandering around. Is it Milan?
1: It's uh, no, it's Madrid during the Glass Spider Tour. It's brilliant. I mean, Obviously, you kind of sent that to me. It's a great link, as a you know, for about fifteen minutes or so. But it's so informal, isn't it? Just uh, Bowie and Frampton wandering around looking for a bar ostensibly, but just gradually attracting this huge audience, as you would do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is great, because Bowie said, oh, it's just a normal day in my life, you know, walking through the streets with me, mate, being followed by 300 people. Um, But obviously, he's got a cameraman with him, and he's got a microphone with him, (laughs) but he starts off with him going and rummaging through a skip. That's right. But the great thing is, you know, I mean, Bowie's just there, very confident, very happy, and Peter Frampton just chips in every now and then. He does. He seems a little bit kind of like in awe of Bowie, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: there's also that protective thing coming through in that that you were just mentioning there, because as a point where, obviously, the fans are coming up to Bowie in hordes, aren't they, for autographs and all the rest of it. And a few of them start saying, isn't that Peter Frampton with yeah. you? And goes, no, no, don't worry about him. No, no, it's not him. And just almost kind of shielding him from this fame.
2: <laughs> I, know, I mean, he's probably just dreading the point where somebody goes, "Wow," your wham, your wham, wham, which would inevitably <laughs> happen. It, it would. would have done if I was there, anyway.
1: <laughs> Carlos Alomar, of course, is the band leader on Never Let Me Down, uh, Bowie's trusted ally. He was talking about his relationship with uh, Frampton. Yeah, He said, we bonded as lead guitar player and rhythm player and also, of course, on the Glass Spider tour as well. That man, talking about Frampton, could play his ass off. He's a sweetheart and I thought that David taking him and putting him on the pedestal that he so deserved was just amazing. I thought that was equal to what he'd done with Iggy Pop. It's a very good point, that, yeah. So, Bowie wrote the album's lead single, Day In, Day
2: Out, because of his concern about the treatment of homeless people in the US. Some networks banned the song's video, which Bowie found ridiculous.
1: Yeah, he did. Time Will Crawl, which Bowie named as his favourite track on the album, was inspired by events from the Chernobyl disaster and the idea that somebody from one's own neighbourhood could be responsible for the end of the world. He actually said that, vocally, it owed a lot to Neil Young on that track. Right. And noted that the variety of voices he used on the album were a nod to the musicians who'd influenced him in the past. Okay, Kooks was influenced by yeah. her, Neil younger yeah. evidently wasn't it the title track never let me
2: down is about Bowie's longtime personal assistant Coco Schwab the song was the last one written for the album written and recorded in one day during the last week of mixing the album at New York's power station Studios Bowie attributed the vocal performance on this track to John Lennon so we've covered Coco yeah. Schwab, haven't we but you have to say this she she did save his life and mm. she did never let him down and you know even now after David's passing she's never seen Seemingly let him down, you know? Not at all. She, I mean, the first thing that she could have done would be uh, run off and either do a load of interviews yeah. or write a book about David Bowie, albeit with the absolute best intentions and all of the love that yeah. she had for him. Not a dicky Not bird. at all. Yep. So, so dignified and brilliant. So, yeah. uh, Coco Schwab, we salute you. Absolutely.
1: She's kept her counsel, did not she? And you have to remember, she was there for everything. Oh, she was there for everything. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mother's Day is around the corner. plushcare.com slash weight loss The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes
1: All right, so the song Zeroes, according to Bowie, was a bit of a nostalgia trip. He said, I wanted to put in every 60s cliche I could think of, uh, stopping and preaching and letting love in, all that kind of stuff. I hope there's a humorous undertone to it, but the subtext is definitely that trappings of rock are not what they're made out to be. So this plays into that whole thing we were talking about, doesn't it? He achieved this megastar mainstream fame and he didn't like it. Yeah. Reeves Gabrels got to know him on the Glass Spider Tour uh, pretty well, and he said recently, he said, the only thing uh, that David said being famous is good for is getting a good table in a restaurant so you're not near the kitchen or getting free tickets for shows. Right, okay. So uh, this is where where it it takes a really bizarre turn. (laughs) Actor Mickey Rourke asked Bowie
2: to be involved in one of the songs, the two having met in London where Rourke was based whilst filming A Prayer for the Dying. So uh, this is a little bit forward, isn't it? Just a bit. Can I be on one of your songs? I mean, he could have said no, but he didn't. No, there is an interesting one, isn't it? So Bowie had him perform the mid-song rap "Ah, Mm. ah," to the song Shining Star Making My Love. Bowie jokingly referred to Rourke's performance as method rapping. (laughs) which has got to be a
1: a (laughs) euphemism for crap. It's terrible. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, there are some things about this album that just aren't salvageable, are they? Bowie described the song as one that reflects back-to-street situations and how people are trying to get together in the face of so many disasters and uh, catastrophes around them, not knowing if they're going to survive it themselves. So the one thing they've got to cling on to is each other, although it might resolve into something terrible. And so when you're thinking of all of those things in the world going on, you immediately go
2: to Mickey Rourke to do a rap. Of course you do. <laughs> Shining Star was one of Bowie's early choices to be a single for the album. Ooh. But thankfully, uh, I just dropped that in, EMI had the final say and did not release the song as a single. No surprise there then. So Bowie called New York's In Love a sarcastic song about the vanity of big cities. In the complete Davy Bowie, Nick Pegg, hello, would call the song a strong contender for the wooden spoon of the album. One of the other contenders of Wooden Spoon is Too Dizzy, isn't it was a first song, Bowie and new collaborator, Kilzaki. Is that how you pronounce Kizzle it? Kizil K, I think. Kizil K. Uh, wrote together for the album uh, and written in homage to the 50s. Now, I'm going to stop at this point and people might be going, it's not homage, Mark. It's homage. Oh. It's not. It's a. It's a, it's a, a an English word. And it is homage. It's homage. People always expect it to be a French word and put the uh, the fancy homage. bit on the end, but yes. it ain't. Just I just thought sort I'd of drop that in. <laughs> well done. Uh, Bowie, at the time, called the song a throwaway and seemed surprised that he included it on the album, which is a, a, <laughs> a weird way of looking at it. I, I'm, I'm surprised I put how, that on the album. How did that
1: get there? Absolutely. Uh, the song has been deleted from subsequent reissues of Never Let Me Down. Which is telling in itself, of course, isn't yeah. it? You know, he's in charge of that. When asked about his choice of including Iggy's song, Bang Bang, on the album, which came out, yeah, was it on Party, that, early 80s? Right. Yeah. Uh, Bowie stated Iggy's done so many good songs that people never get to hear I think it's one of his best bang bang and it hasn't been heard now it might be and it's a more coffers in the bank for Iggy Pop bless definitely him. overall Bowie summed up the album after it was released in 87 as an effort to re-establish what I used to do which was a guitar oriented album I think the next album will be even more so of course we know now this led to Tin Machine a whole other project it did yeah so initial sales of the album were strong but dropped off when it started getting mixed
2: reviews Spin Magazine called it an inspired and brilliantly crafted work it's charged with a positive spirit that makes art soul food imbued with the contagious energy that
1: gives ideas is a leg to dance on. Very poetic. Certainly. Rolling Stone called the album an odd, freewheeling pastiche of elements from all the previous Bowies, going on to call it unfocused and possibly the noisiest, sloppiest Bowie album ever. Never Let Me Down is also something of a mess. I think you said that twice, really. Mm. Billboard magazine's 1987 retrospective called Never Let Me Down arguably the year's most underrated release and considered it a critic's choice for the year. So, divided opinion. Again, we've uh, talked previously, uh, particularly on the uh, Six Music Radio programme,
2: about an amnesty. Normally, it's for people (laughs) who give bad reviews to great records, but you just have to wonder, conversely, if somebody wants a a retraction on that. I mean, there are people out there who do like the album, and and, and as we know, it's been revisited, and we'll we'll get to all that. But uh, Bowie did change his mind about the album because he did defend it, didn't he, at some yeah, point? It, okay, he did. He said, uh, I was not concerned about the album's relative poor performance in the charts, saying, I've made about 20 albums during my career and so far this is my third biggest seller, so I can't be that disappointed. Yet, it is a letdown that it hasn't been as buoyant as it should be, but I don't really feel that negative about it. As far as I'm concerned, it's one of the better albums I've made. Mm. And then on a sixpence he would he would turn round yeah. eventually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So looking at his legacy now, so after the album came out, Bowie was excited to get back into the studio as soon as he could, having written more tunes than he needed for the album. And he started referencing Brian Eno in interviews, said he wanted to record more experimental music. However, due to the poor critical reception of the album and the Glass Spider tour, Bowie put all those plans on hold and instead formed Tim Machine, which he used to just rejuvenate himself. He did. I mean, he just... It was one of those where you
2: could tell... Really, he'd been looking at Iggy Pop for a long time and I think he—he he, he, there was a certain part of Bowie that wanted to be very, very much like Iggy. Definitely. Like the rocker with a bit of abandon. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he would never go down the lines of uh, dropping his strides and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, which Iggy uh, was prone to do. No, you know?
1: or smearing himself in peanut butter,
2: probably not. Oh, well, I don't well, know. <laughs> <laughs> not in public, anyway. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. And so uh, as far as Bowie was concerned, he, he was a band. That was the thing about Tim Machine. And we'll yeah. obviously, we'll do Tim Machine in a whole different episode. Yeah, sure. Uh, But he was just straining at the leash to be in a rock and roll band still. So, you know, Never Let Me Down, he he attempted it, but he didn't really nail it. And so he just thought, right, okay, I'm going to form a band. So anyway, his view on the album soured as the years passed. Not Tim Machine, but Never Let Me Down. In 1990, during interviews for his Sound and Vision tour, Bowie commented that he felt like he was in a mire whilst making this album, and expressed disappointment at having lost good songs by allowing the album's production to give the songs too much of a session man feel. Mm. So he's steering away from the songs
1: and more towards the sound of the album. Yeah, and look. the 80s was synonymous with well, bad sounding records, wasn't it? It was, of course, it was. Uh, this is, a, you know, this is the element the. Is the basis of why they ended up re recording it. But yeah, I mean, it was a weird one as well because Never Let Me Down just had um, pre programmed drums on it. So there's no physical drummer in the studio. It couldn't be more 80s, could it? It's such an 80s sounding record. It is strange. And
2: then again, if you go back to uh, The Idiot. And that's yeah. got a drum machine on yeah, it, sure. hasn't it? You know, and, uh, and Bowie wanted to put live drums on that and mm. Iggy wouldn't let him. So another kind of little
1: conflict going on there. Yeah, whilst he was working with Tim Machine on their second album, Bowie was musing on his uh, previous few albums and he said, you could tell I was terribly unhappy in the late 80s. I was in that netherworld of commercial acceptance. It was an awful trip. From 83 to 86, 87. Those five years were simply dreadful. Never let me down. I had good songs that I mistreated. I didn't really apply myself. I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to be doing. I wish there'd been somebody around who could have told me. He said this before as well, hasn't he? For videos particularly, like and that's mm. some of the stuff around Labyrinth. But That's you know, right,
2: yeah. When he finds himself too busy or a little bit distracted and he leaves it to other people and, and they come back and he's disappointed with it and there's nothing you can say because you've turned your back on it and, and dropped the ball in a way. Yeah, you can only blame yourself, can't you? But that's the problem with being yeah. a perfectionist isn't yeah. it if you do leave it to somebody else and it doesn't come back exactly as you want it it's just the way of the world isn't it it's yes, just the way of it, is. it is uh, but Bowie in 1993 said now I listen to Never Let Me Down and I wish I had been less indifferent to its production because there were some good songs on it but I let it go and it became very soft musically which wasn't the way I would have done it if I'd have been more involved so there we go if you look at him considering it to be soft musically and the intention was to make a rock album yeah. there's a massive conflict <laughs> so in 1995 Bowie spoke more at length about about how he felt his creativity and music had suffered after the success of Let's Dance. He said... The great public esteem at that time meant absolutely nothing to me. It didn't make me feel good. I felt dissatisfied with everything I was doing, and eventually it started showing in my work. Let's Dance was an excellent album in a certain genre, but the next two albums after that, Tonight and Never Let Me Down, showed that my lack of
1: interest in my own work was really becoming transparent. And he continued, My Nadir was Never Let Me Down. It was such an awful album. I've gotten to a place now where I'm not very judgmental about myself. I put out what I do, whether it's in visual arts or in music, because I know that everything. I I do is really heartfelt. Even if it's a failure, artistically, it doesn't bother me in the same way that Never Let Me Down bothers me. I really shouldn't have even bothered going into the studio to record it. In fact, when I play it, I wonder if sometimes I did... And it's a weird one. One of the things that Reeves Gabrels was saying, that even when they were just starting off doing, uh, you know, Tin Machine, Bowie was already kind of wittering to him, saying, I want to re-record this album I've just done. Oh, really? So it was, as early as that, yeah, he was sort of having doubts about it all. And, of course, one of the reasons this album got such a terrible reputation is that Bowie disowned it. Essentially, he got some good reviews,
2: some bad reviews. Yeah. and then and then people stopped buying it quite quickly. It didn't have any shelf life Not at, at, at all, all, did it?
1: In fact, he played a lot of the tunes on Glass Spider, obviously, as you do. But after that, I don't think he played anything else in concert at all, did he? From mm. that album we have said previously and we've mentioned this in in a
2: previous episode that uh, every now and then he would test the patience of his audience his fans but they would come back to him mm-hmm. he had this undying faith in them because and does I suppose yeah, in that way because you do flit in and out I yeah. did the same yeah. thing around about this time uh, and I even did as we've just mentioned went to Milton Keynes you know and I went to see him afterwards as well I went to the glass spider tour yeah and I saw him lots and lots in the in the in the last 10 years of his career mm. uh, but yeah he, he knew that every now and then and he'd stick his neck out, artistically, and sometimes it would work, and sometimes it wouldn't. And I think we've, <laughs> I think we've come to the conclusion... That he didn't this on this didn't, occasion. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. So, I mean, the track list uh, starts with Day In, Day Out. Time Will Crawl. Beat of Your Drum. Uh, Never Let Me Down. Zeros. Glass Spider. Shining Star. New York's In Love. 87 and Cry. Too Dizzy. And the Iggy cover, Bang Bang. Which was also written by Ivan Kral, who it was? was in Iggy Pop's Bam Money, hmm. who were uh, Ka-Ching. Yeah, okay. So, moving on to the re-recording then. So, Never Let Me Down 2018. Well, you're the expert on this, Bob, because you've spent hours and hours and hours
2: interviewing people, some amazing stuff in there. And there is. Obviously, the box sets have been thrown out for uh, Bowie's work at the moment. Yeah. They're just brilliant. Mm. And like, re- the releasing of Gauster and all that kind of mm. stuff. I mean, and some of the Bowie nuts are very, very critical of things that are being done. Yeah. And if you look at this period of Bowie's career, it's going to be the hardest one to uh, to salvage, really, yeah, isn't it? absolutely. But there is a
1: story behind it. So what's the story, Bob? There is, OK. So uh, the box set you're talking about, of course, is Loving the Alien we should mention as well, you know, there's great stuff on there like a live performance from Sirius Moonlight so, mm. you know, you can lots to get your teeth into So the new recording was overseen by Mario McNulty as producer and engineer and you've got Reeves Gabrels on there with guitar and David Torn, Sterling Campbell Tim Lefebvre as well as string quartet and a guest cameo by Laurie Anderson, so no more Mickey Rourke <laughs> on the re-recording, okay <laughs> The seeds of this were sown firstly in 2008 when Bowie asked Mario McNulty to remix Time Will Crawl for, uh, it was an I Select compilation, wasn't it? Right. So it wasn't just a remix thing. He actually got uh, Sterling Campbell in to play uh, drums and put some strings on it and some more other stuff. And then Bowie had said to Marriott McNulty, said, oh, to redo the rest of that album. So this is a thing, really. I mean, it, it had the, the whole project has Bowie's blessing. Of it course, is, it, now it
2: Bowie, has... Has, Bowie has sadly passed away, but it's something that he wanted to see mm. and, and, and didn't sadly stick around long enough to.
1: Yeah, so this remix of Time Will Crawl was the template. And so, you know, come the start of the year when the Bowie estate decides you know what what were his wishes you know Mm. this sort of five year plan and all the rest of it and he wanted to get this re-recorded so they they just had that to go off so no kind of hard and fast instructions just let's do it in this style and we should be okay. Right. All okay. Right.
2: So, fast forward to early 2018. McNulty entered Electric Lady Studios in New York with Sterling and uh, Tim Thingby Bob on bass. Well How do you pronounce it, Bob? I
1: say Lefevre.
2: Well, you, that's right. Every time I come back to Tim, you can you can say his surname. Uh, it was in the Black Star Band, uh, an amazing musician, uh, and Reeves Gabrels and David Torn again, as we say, on guitars. So all the musicians had a history with Bowie, so they were just a perfect fit for what would sound like brand new
1: songs. That's what they were hoping to just breathe some life into him, weren't yeah. they? So I was talking to to uh, Marion McNulty about, you know, just how he would approach this, all right? Obviously, with Bowie not around. He said, uh, well, David made it very clear that he wasn't pleased with Never Let Me Down. He was disappointed with the sound of the album, not just the production, but the uh, sound of it as well, the way it was mixed where it has this very stereotypical 80s reverb and these programmed drums that don't really match, and also the use of all the keyboards at the time that wasn't to his taste. And to me, it wasn't a surprise that he didn't like it because when I first heard the album, I felt the same. It's funny because that is it. I mean, Bowie, as we know, would lead the way. I mean, Ziggy, the sound
2: of Ziggy wasn't anything new, was no. it? It was just a, a, the great concept and the great songs. But then you hit the mid-70s and he's always pushing ahead, taking stuff, being the magpie and all yeah. of those kind of cliches. Yeah. But here he just completely embraced the worst elements of the 80s. Mm. It dated almost immediately and also, didn't it? also
1: the thing about you talking about the 70s there are all those great sonic recordings you know and how ahead of the time they were. Suddenly the world had caught up with him and he was no longer kind of a trailblazer was he by this point? That's right okay so this is what Reeve Cabrel said to you Bobbert. I met David when he was on the Glass Spider tour and
2: a lot of those songs were being played live at the time. At that point he already had some reservation about the sound of the
1: record. All the musicians involved on that record played great but it was more about the sound and the production. Uh, he says I remember we were sitting on deck chairs by mountain studios. Studio, looking at the mountains across Lake Geneva. How nice. Mm. And he started telling me, you know, I'm proud of the songs on that album, but I wasn't in the best shape and it wasn't as present as I should have been at the sessions. And he later pointed to a couch in the studio and said, I did most of my work on there. Passed out. Oh, dear. So he blamed himself for a lot of it at that point in time. He suggested that we could try re-recording some of these songs. So the only reason they didn't was because they were already writing for Tim Machine and Gabriel thought, let's just push ahead with the new stuff. That makes sense. Well, I mean, of course if you does. read
2: Gabrells, you'll just be so thrilled at the yeah. thought of getting involved in rolling your sleeves up on a new project with Bowie yeah. rather than
1: revisiting them salvaging yeah. or something, wouldn't Yeah, you? yeah he couldn't believe his look. This is quite touching, very poignant here. So Gabrells, this is him talking about the re-recording of Zeros, because this was like the sort of lead single from the box set, isn't it? Uh, he says, one of the things David and I used to do from Tim machine right through to ours, is we'd often double acoustic guitars together. So we'd sit facing each other with our guitars in front of the mics. And he said, I started playing zeros on acoustic guitar and with my eyes closed uh, while we were recording. And in my mind's eye, I saw David sitting right across from me. And I could see the way he'd move his shoulder when he was playing. And even the way he would cross his legs and bounce the cross leg a little bit while he was playing with, on his guitar. He'd look at you, but at the same time, get this faraway look in his eye. So anyway, I did it, I got to the end of the track, I finished it, opened my eyes, and of course, he wasn't there. I knew at some point I was going to feel like I was about to cry. I knew it was coming, I was just so glad I was sitting alone in the studio when it finally happened. Wow, what a moment. Yeah. What a moment. Okay, so um, he says, at one point, we all
2: looked at each other and said, Flip, we should take this band out on the road. If only the singer was alive. There were a number of things that were said, I could imagine David laughing at them. He was the one who said to me, Death will never hurt an artist's career. There you go. The A to Z
0: of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley.
2: N is for Tony Newman. Richard Anthony Tony Newman, born 17th of March 1943 in Southampton, is an English rock drummer currently residing in Franklin, Tennessee. So his professional career began as a member of Sounds Incorporated, formed in early
1: 1961 in Dartford, Kent, and were best known for their saxophone-led instrumental sound. In August 1961, after Gene Vincent's band, the Blue Caps, had been denied permission to work in the UK, Sounds Incorporated were asked to back Vincent on his British tour and on several recording sessions in London... The success of these sessions led to opportunities to uh, back other visiting American artists like Little Richard... Jerry Lee Lewis, Brenda Lee and Sam Cooke. Their only record with Parlophone, Mogambo, failed to sell at all. Okay, so the band then moved to Decca, where they released
2: a trio of singles, the last of which was recorded with producer Joe Meek, which again fell on deaf ears. It was a chance encounter whilst performing in Hamburg that the band's fortunes changed. They met and befriended the Beatles, and in 1963 signed to Brianette Stein's management company,
1: NEMS. Ooh, handy. So the band's first two singles on new label Columbia, The Spartans and Spanish Harlem, made the UK Singles Chart in 1964. These were the only successes that Sounds Incorporated enjoyed in the UK. That same year, they became Cilla Black's backing band and released their first album called... Sounds Incorporated, uh, their third Columbia single, a version of the William Tell Overture, was included. Turned out to be their biggest hit in Australia. Getting to number two, Mark. Blimey. So, the group toured the world as a Beatles opening act. Can you imagine? Ooh, hey?
2: How many times have these guys seen the Beatles And It's just, mm. uh, uh, I don't know. Somebody needs to catch up with Tony. He needs to write a book about the Beatles, does Tony Newman. Aren't oh, I? yes. Uh, including the August 1965 concert at New York City's Shea Stadium. Oh, come on. That is history. Whoa. Yeah, Sound Incorporated Continuing popularity ensured a stream of work, including backing duties at the televised Enemy Awards in December 1964. Enemy reported that Sound Incorporated would appear at the Hammersmith Odeon at the Another Beatles Christmas Show. Oh,
1: great! Unusual musical instruments were a feature. The battery-operated clavoline keyboard, as used by the Tornados, is heard on Keep Moving. It's also heard prominently on their previous disc, Before Meek. Sounds like locomotion. Al Holmes played the lead melody on the flute. By the way, throughout the Spartans. Okay. By 1967, the band's name had been truncated to Sounds
2: Inc. The Beatles invited Cameron, Holmes and West to be the saxophone section on their track Good Morning, Good Morning from the album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. After this guest appearance, Sound Inc. left EMI and released a solitary single on the Polydor label,
1: titled How Do You Feel? It was the first single released to feature vocals. The group began to disintegrate in the late 60s. Tony Newman left to work as a session musician. Didn't do badly, though. Uh, He was at various times. He was a member of Mayblitz, Three Man Army, T-Rex and Boxer. So he's also performed with Jeff Beck, George Harrison, Robert Palmer, Eric Clapton,
2: Donovan, Mick Ronson, Gene Vincent, Crystal Gale, the Everly brothers. He played on
1: Donovan's Barabaja Gal, is that right? Oh, I'm glad you did that one, mate. As well as on Jeff Beck's Beckola, which is easier to say. He was also one of the featured drummers on the soundtrack to the film version of the Who's Tommy? So we should really get to the Bowie connection here, shouldn't we?
2: Definitely. So uh for David Bowie, he performed on Diamond Dogs, the album 1974, and Livey Bowie on the subsequent North. American tour, including a recording at the Tower of Philadelphia, uh, released as David
1: Live. Following you don't the... like that album, do you, Bob? I've come around to it a bit. Good. Following the disintegration of the Spiders from Mars and with the covers album pinups which featured, of course, Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, though not uh, Woody Woodmansey. Bowie decided to play as much of the music on his next album as possible. He did. He called on the services of the ever-reliable and brilliant Herbie Flowers to play
2: bass. So Trevor Boulder, as uh, we remember on Diamond mm. Dogs, he, he was asked to turn up, and he turned up at the studio. He hovered about a bit. Bowie didn't pay much attention no. to him. Trevor Boulder went out the door saying bye and got nothing back. Was, that, yeah. My heart sank when I read yeah. all that, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, Blue Mink guitarist Alan Parker played on it, though Bowie did play a lot of the guitar- Guitar on the record, uh, piano virtuoso Mike Garson was recalled, and two drummers, one being Ainsley Dunbar, yeah. who'd appeared on the 1984 show and Pinups, the other being Tony Newman. And uh, do you know, it is funny, he's got two drummers here. Uh, but if you remember, I haven't mentioned it before, but not everybody gets to hear it every episode yeah. of this podcast, sadly. Um, but um, yeah, my mate and I call him the greatest living Englishman, but Vic Godard. Oh yes, he recognised David Bowie's car. He got to know it. He was a fan. He could recognise Bowie's chauffeur, and he was outside. Uh, Olympia Studios waiting for Bowie and Vic went up to him and said, is Bowie in there? No, he's not, son. He isn't He. No, he's not, son. He is. What time are coming out? Four o'clock. So, And he waited for him. Uh, but the but the interesting thing was that i had been recording. Bowie told Vic he'd been recording Rebel Rebel, but he'd been doing drums all day. Oh, right. Wow. So there you go. Uh, There's
1: three drummers on this yeah. album. Yeah, OK. So anyway, for whatever reason, it was Tony Newman, not Dunbar, who was invited onto the North American tour to promote Diamond Dogs. As a consequence, of course, as you mentioned, he plays on David Live. So we're going to look at this interview now with Tony Newman from Let It Rock. Which is, a, And he has a great answer to a question from, uh, well, another big Bowie fan. Uh, the question being, your career spans more than four decades. Don't you find it somewhat abusing or amusing that you're mostly remembered by your work with David Bowie? Uh, his
2: reply, it depends on the frame of reference you're coming from. Whenever I'm out with the Everly Brothers, people are interested in my career with Sound Incorporated. The first record I played on was with Gene Vincent in 1960. I'm going home. Sound Incorporated were a remarkable band to work with. I was sewn into the deep end right from the off. Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that lot. Tours with the Beatles. Always with top acts. So I didn't really have to do the grunge work. And all of the acts we were backing, I could copy what the drummers had played on the records. So it was first class all the way <laughs> oh.
1: this as well from Modern Drummer uh, website and he talks about being a recovering alcoholic and also a drug addict uh, doesn't he, he started drinking age 13 it's mm. remarkable, brutal He's introduced to Speed by Gene Vincent during his spell with him, and this is where the interview went from there. So Modern Drummer asks him, when did you finally break free of your addictions? So Tony said, I got sober in 1983, and that's when I took a one-way ticket to Nashville.
2: Funny thing is, I've been fortunate with my accounts. In that sense, my life has been blessed. I mean, one day I'm working in the studio, and I get a call from Davey Bowie. Can you come and do this? I left the band I was in, Three Man Army, to join Bowie. So Three Man Army uh, featured the guys who then went on to form Baker Gervitz. Yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. And then uh, the uh, magazine
1: asked a question. What can you tell us about working with him? So Tony says, we were working on the Diamond Dogs album when David asked me, I'm doing a theatrical tour of America. Would you like to come on tour with us? We went to New York and we were there for a month rehearsing every day. I had no idea of David's repertoire. we <laughs> were probably, you know, too busy to yeah, catch yeah. up. Uh, he was ever so nice. When I was in the studio with him, he never, ever told me what to play. He'd give me scenarios of what he wanted me to imagine as I was playing drums. This is great. One of the scenarios for Sweet Thing was that he wanted me to imagine I was a teenage French drummer watching a guillotining for the first time. Wow, OK. And uh, so the magazine says,
2: what? And Tony said, yeah, I'll never forget that. But for the tour, Tony Basil came in for the choreography and there was a stage manager, someone we call Nick the Russian, who was actually called Nick Russian. <laughs> That's right. He was actually a Broadway stage manager. When we came to the show, it was enormous.
1: But we had these colossal sets. It was like a Broadway show, but on the road. And he continued, we recorded the album, David Live, in Philadelphia, but I was doing so much blow that I didn't realise what was going on when I got on stage. I sat down and played A Basket Case. He said, that's what I was like. Apparently we did another night, which I have no idea of. I thought I played dreadfully on both nights. I was doing a lot of cocaine and sharing it with a lot of other people. It was getting pretty bloody mad. He says here, I've never listened to David Live. I couldn't face listening to it. Then, apparently, they remixed that. My son called me from England and said, you ought having a listen to this dad you use a double kick and everything on it Uh, I got a copy and read the liner notes and I think David remarked that the drums were great both nights and so the interviewer says to him "Uh, you thought you'd ruined it and Tony replies,
2: Absolutely, for fuck's sake, let's get through with this. And then, my wife at the time, Margot, had gone nuts in England, so it's not a very sympathetic way no, of putting it, you have to say, but yeah. I got her to come to New York to see John Lennon's doctor, and he said she needed to go to the sanitarium. She brought two of the kids, and so they came on the road with me. The English bass player, Herbie Flowers, said he thoroughly had enough of touring and was leaving. For some reason, I left too. Earl Slick and the manager would call me please come back but I was so into my addiction that I didn't want to do it anymore I'd burnt myself out so he's on the road he doesn't know what he's doing he's got his kids on the road with him I mean you can't
1: blame him really for taking a step back can you but what a way to drop out absolutely he talks he carries on he said I was so sad when David died I'd seen him a couple of times after I left the show went on obviously and it worked out great I always wanted to make amends to him for being so selfish I was always professional and showed up and did my job prior to this But all of a sudden the drugs had gotten to me and I went nuts. Horrible. I left my wife and kids and I was sitting in a flat in London drinking special brew and this Victorian laudanum called Dr J Collis Brown's Cough Mixture. I lost my drums in some deal around the time I was in the band Boxer, so I had nothing. I'd get this little bottle, shake it up, put it in a pint glass and drink it. Within about 10 minutes the chloroform hit me and it would be euphoric, followed by 10 hours of heroin buzz. You know, you just cannot imagine, can you? I mean, talk about grasping defeat from the Jaws of Vichyans. It's
2: not a moral tale, is it? You know, I mean, people people choose to do drugs. Different people react different ways, don't they? Yeah. Uh, But to end up without even a drum kit. And and that continues here, doesn't it? So uh, the magazine said, uh, how do Mark Boland and T-Rex figure in all of this? And he said, Herbie Flowers called me and said, Mark Boland hasn't been on the road for a while and he really could do with a drummer. Will you come over? I said, I haven't got a drum kit. He said, I'll make sure they rent you on, not even buy him." Oh. I went over to the studio and made the drums sound pretty nice. I had a wonderful gig. I loved Bolan. He and I were great buddies. I think Mark Bolan was one of the greatest acts I've ever been on stage with.
1: He had so much charisma. I'm really sorry he died. It was a great tragedy. So despite all this kind of turmoil in his, you know, this sort of self-destruction in the 70s, he's playing with these greats. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the list, I mean, it's a cream of the crop, isn't it? And yeah. he is a fantastic drummer.
2: Oh, and, yeah. And Bowie was right, and uh, Tony, your son was right. Uh, yeah, great drumming on David Live. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, recorded and edited by Howard Nock, with social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... The 1980 Floor Show, New York Dolls, the next day.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.